0: Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. The first spinal fusion procedure has been performed in Canada and happened right here in Hamilton. Food bank use in Canada is soaring. Your home insurance policy may soon come with a climate risk score. A climate rally is being held outside Hamilton City Hall. When it comes to sustainable energy transformation, where does Canada rank? And what are the most popular Halloween costumes this Halloween? We'll let you know. The GMH podcast starts now.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Huge news out of Hamilton Health Sciences. They shared a, a really remarkable story in, uh, in regards to uh, a really, at least in Canada, a new kind of procedure that eases back pain. It is a spinal fusion procedure and a doctor at HHS has performed Uh, this operation this procedure for the first time at the hospital and it may have been the first time in Ontario that this was done and uh, the doctor joins us now Dr. Deep Guha is a spinal neurosurgeon at Hamilton Health Sciences Dr. Guha good morning how are you today?
2: Good morning Rick. great how are you thanks for having
0: me. Yeah thanks for coming on this is exciting news how did this all come about?
2: So I uh, I did uh, some fellowship training, some additional training after residency in Pittsburgh last year. So that's where I picked up some of these uh, techniques. And it's a, an alternate way of doing a spinal fusion, which uh, we've been doing for many, many years here and everywhere through standard techniques. But uh, this is a sort of less invasive way uh, that can help people um get through their surgery with less blood loss, less time in the operating room, uh, faster recovery and shorter stay uh, in the hospital for selected patients uh, who are appropriate for it. Uh, And so, yeah, I brought, uh, I trained in that technique and uh, was able to uh, apply it here to, uh, to a patient who fits.
0: What? How would you describe the old way of doing this, and and what's new and special about this new spinal fusion procedure?
2: So I wouldn't actually call it an old and a new. So this technique was actually described in the 1990s, and in the states, it's quite commonplace, right? So it's an it's one of multiple options. So what we've done in Canada traditionally uh, has been coming from the back, and uh, when we're doing surgery on somebody's lumbar spine to fuse them for their uh, debilitating back and leg pain, and you have to split the big back muscles uh, and, uh, in order to access the spine, but those same back muscles are the ones that might be contributing to your pain, and those are the ones that you need to be nice and strong afterwards to uh, help your spine recover and minimize the chance of injury in the future so coming from the side, like we did in this approach, minimizes that uh, injury to those back muscles uh, and therefore helps you with less pain uh, after surgery and to get up and move around and uh, and to be able to go home faster. Uh, and there's also less bleeding, less chance of infection associated with it, but it, uh, there are certain uh, bits of the patient anatomy that have to... Uh, be appropriate for this kind of procedure. So it's an alternate uh, option right, for patients who fit.
0: For those patients who do fit, one of those was 58-year-old Diane LaPlante of St. Catharines who underwent this procedure. What made her a good candidate?
3: Yeah,
2: so first off, uh, if anybody who's having surgery, they have to be a good surgical candidate, so that means, you know, surgery of course is invasive and has risks and anything we do in medicine, so you never jump to that as the first step. So for people coming in with significant back and leg pain, as Diane did, you try all of the non-surgical treatments first, things like physical therapy, and massage, and acupuncture, aquatherapy, things like that, uh, medications of course, and then there are injections at uh, pain clinics that can target Uh, different pain generators in the spine, and she did all of those things, and despite that, had debilitating pain that uh, was impacting her quality of life. So that's uh, when surgery is potentially an option if somebody has a structural problem, and she did. Uh, So that's step one. And then there were aspects of her anatomy that made her a good candidate for uh, this specific procedure, uh, namely that... uh, she had a bit of a slip of one bone on another as, as a result of arthritis in her spine. And she also had what we call a uh, a degenerative deformity. So when we talk about a deformity in the spine, oftentimes people think of you know, scoliosis in the, in adolescence, but you can also have one that is not really related to that, but is from uh, severe arthritis in the spine. And so that's what she had. And so this uh, technique where we came from the side is particularly powerful uh, at correcting those types of deformities. So that's what made her a, a good candidate.
0: Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Deep Kuhar, spinal neurosurgeon at Hamilton Health Sciences, who's performed the first spinal fusion procedure at HHS and perhaps in all of Ontario. You mentioned this has been used for a few years now in the United States. Did you have to pitch or try to coerce or, or or really hype up this procedure to your boss to allow you to use this?
2: Uh, not so much. I mean, that's uh, part of the reason I was uh, recruited back uh, to HHS is, uh, is to bring some of these new techniques that you pick up in fellowship training. But of course, uh, with any new procedure uh, or new technique of doing things that you're bringing to a hospital, uh, you do... Uh, you do have to make a bit of a pitch uh, in that uh, is the cost of the implants that you use, or the co- any additional costs that are associated with it, uh, are those appropriate? And do they justify the patient benefits? And uh, in this case, they I think they most certainly do. Uh, so, yeah, once that pitch was made, uh, uh, everybody was readily on board. And they got all of the training done, and of course, it's a big team effort. Anytime we do anything like this. Uh, so, there's, uh, there's clinical colleagues involved, uh, nurses, uh, clinical managers in the operating room, um, equipment vendors who have to bring in the necessary equipment to do this, uh, and so everybody pulled together and, uh, and made it a great success.
0: How is Diane doing today?
2: She's doing well. It's uh, She's still early on in her uh, recovery, of course, so her uh, leg pain got better quite quickly, uh, even while she was in hospital. Uh, in the first couple of days there uh, and uh, has continued to to be better. And the back pain is a piece that comes more slowly, and that's just because, again, with back pain, there's multiple pain generators in the spine. So anytime we do a spinal fusion, whether it's through this way or a standard technique, um, that is only taking away one of many many potential generators of uh, that pain. So... Uh, That part is coming more slowly, but overall, I think she's so far quite happy with her outcome.
0: It's great to hear, and it's great to see that these types of uh, really uh, amazing procedures are happening in our community. Dr. Guhoff, thank you for your time today, and uh, we'll touch base down the road, I'm sure
2: absolutely thanks very much for having me rick
1: you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml
4: our hunger count 2022 report is really what i would call a devastating wake-up call um, in March 2022, nearly 1.5 million people turned to a food bank for support.
0: That is the voice of Kirsten Beardsley, the CEO of Food Banks Canada, as more and more Canadians are having to turn to a food bank. And earlier this year, the number of users jumped to an all time high in this country. Food Banks Canada says that there were nearly 1.5 million visitors in March to food banks. That's a 15% spike than the same time last year and 35% higher than March of 2019, right before the pandemic hit. What's happening here in Hamilton? Joanne Santucci is the CEO of Hamilton Food Share and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Joanne, good morning. Welcome to the show again. Good morning, Ray. Boy, these stats are scary, but at the same time, they're not surprising, right?
5: They're not surprising. Like, we're in a food security crisis, and that's the biggest indicator. We have other problems in our system. Our social safety net is broken. Add skyrocket inflation, the pandemic we just went through. And, Rick, what are we facing with people who are already struggling? The winter, heating bills, clothes, that kind of thing is coming. The holidays are coming. After that, the economists are predicting a recession. the pressure on households right now is amazing so if you look at the 1.5 million visits across our nation one-third were children in hamilton it's closer to 40 percent it's 39 percent are children that line up to a food bank and sit outside playing with their friends you know we look at our seniors like this really upsets me uh nationally uh seniors accessing a food bank was seven percent it's now nine over the last two years in hamilton that number is going to over 30 percent we look at also, people, 62% of the people who come to, uh, to food banks in Hamilton are on OW or ODSP, Ontario Works or Ontario Disability Support Programs. These are provincial programs that are so far below the, the poverty line as far as giving levels of supports, 60 to 40% below the poverty line. If the government set the poverty line as anything below that, you aren't able to you know, sustain yourself of basic needs? Why are these programs so far below that? Uh, the the suffering that goes on in these households, I can't even begin. We did a survey just a while back of people actually right now that are currently accessing the food bank. Ask them all kinds of questions about the food bank, how does it help, and 46% of them, 46% said they would be homeless if it was not for the the help they were getting for the food bank. Now, Rick, you can talk about numbers, but you get the the... The thing that behind these numbers is is people struggling day in day out, and it keeps degrading the amount of supports coming. Most of these households are one resource away from not getting that resource, from becoming homeless. Canadians need that. This is a wake up call. Canadians should go on Food Banks Canada and get that um, get that report because it really speaks to a crumbling social safety net under our feet.
0: We know that uh, winter is just weeks away. You mentioned, you know, that the colder weather, that means higher heating bills. That means uh, people not being able to to, to go outside and, uh, you know, do what they have to do. Uh, How is Hamilton Foodshare preparing for the winter ahead, knowing that there's going to be more people knocking on your door?
5: Well, at first, we have to do the responsible thing like every other business. During the COVID, you know, uh, that was the biggest crisis ever, and it taught us. A crisis could always be looming around the corner of that significance. So we put some money away for, uh, you know, for the inflation that we knew was coming. Uh, we added to our, uh, you know, our fundraising. You know, people in Hamilton are generous, but everybody's being affected by inflation. So we know that. All we're saying to our community as we start talking about the holiday season you know, uh, don't forget about your local food banks. We know you may not be able to give like you used to, but give whatever you can. And so we, we have some reserves, we have a plan, uh, and we also have a fantastic community, I think, that will help get us over that, that finish line.
0: Is the expectation with where inflation is, where the cost of living is, is the expectation that donations are going to be somewhat or substantially down this year compared to previous years?
5: I think it's easy to think that way, and I, and I really believe that's probably the case. But you know, we thought about that when, when the, the pandemic hit, and a tsunami of support came from households in, in Hamilton like nobody's business. I've never seen it before. So our our city can really rise to those crises and really ensure that the people that are dealing with them and, and helping our neighbors in need are really taken care of. So I got faith in our community. I got faith in my team, and I think we're going to be out there. Uh, doing the best we can to ensure that we can rise to the level of supports that people need in Hamilton.
0: Talking about the latest Food Banks Canada report that was out that shows some startling statistics. And our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900CHML is Joanne Santucci, CEO of Hamilton FoodShare. The report also makes some recommendations to start the wheels in motion to, to, to change things for many people. What do you see as maybe the most impactful of those recommendations?
5: I don't even know how you can separate them because they're all contributing. But first, there has to be a minimum floor of income, no matter what government program you have to lean on when you fall into hard times. EI, OW, or ODSB, even pensions aren't making it. If seniors are now coming to the the food bank, even that level is not sustaining. So I would say we'd have to have a minimum floor there, and uh, communities should – uh, talking to the provincial government about that. Also, we have an affordability uh, crisis in housing. Let's not make more people, uh, you know, homeless while we're trying to figure those pieces out. And lastly, one big huge anomaly is the most people who have been employed have accessed the food bank when unemployment was at its lowest. That's another unbelievable stat. It's saying that even the people who are working, it's no longer a pathway out of poverty. It doesn't preclude you come to a food, not come to a food bank or need one. That has to change. So we have to look at all of those incomes, and uh, because this isn't uh, a food security crisis, isn't about food. It's about household income.
0: I'll also encourage our listeners to go online to hamiltonfoodshare.org and uh, donate what you can. I know you can use money, and that's the most important thing, because you can stretch those dollars. And let's encourage everyone to go and do that. Joanne, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Joanne Santucci is the CEO of Hamilton Foodshare. Again, that website, hamiltonfoodshare.org. As you know, I don't need to tell you, phenomenal program here in town that helps so, so many people.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Should Canadian homes be given climate risk scores? Think of thinking, what the heck is a climate risk score? Well, the Insurance Bureau of Canada calling for the creation of this climate risk score that would indicate a property's susceptibility to damages caused by natural disasters. We've had, how many times have we heard over the last number of years, well, this was the 100-year storm. We didn't see this storm for 100 years, and all of a sudden we got like two or three of them over the last couple of years. Craig Stewart is the VP of Climate Change and Federal Issues with the Insurance Bureau of Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Craig, good morning. How are you today?
3: Oh, good morning, Rick.
0: Great. Thanks for having me on the show. Tell us about climate risk scores. Is this being used anywhere else?
3: Um, we are, uh, yes, uh, in fact. So there are uh, other countries, uh, such as the UK, uh, that do deploy climate risk scores uh, in uh, real estate listings. Um, the intent of a climate risk score is to really provide line of sight uh, for a homeowner or a home buyer. Uh, into where, uh, what their risk might actually be. Uh, you know, depending on where you live in this country, uh, you could be at risk of coastal storm surge, for instance, wildfires in the interior of BC, uh flooding uh, pretty, well are, pretty well anywhere across the country. Certain areas of the country are more susceptible to hailstorms, windstorms. And what, what a climate risk score would do is to roll that risk up. The risk that we see as insurers, it would roll that risk up, make it transparent, and disclose it to a homeowner as an incentive that they would to try to prompt them to take the measures needed to protect themselves.
0: So, it, would this be based on a like a one to ten system where if you get a ten, you're in a you're in an area of the world or the country that is more susceptible, susceptible to some of the things that you mentioned?
3: That's right. So it'd be a, some sort of readily uh, you know, digestible score, something that you could that'd be easy to understand. And would be what would be important is not only understanding what your present score is, but what, you, what measures you can take to improve that score uh, over time. It would be, you know, we're, f- we're familiar now with EnerGuide. Uh, you know, there's an EnerGuide rating system for appliances, you know, about how much energy they use. There's an EnerGuide system for, for homes even, uh, to rate a home on energy efficiency. Think about this as analogous to that. This is a sen- essentially a climate resilience score, uh, that would uh, that would help you understand exactly, you know, w- how much risk your home faces.
0: So you could potentially have, let's just say, two homes in Hamilton, uh, where one home has a different score than the other, depending on what improvements the one homeowner has made in relation to climate.
3: That's correct. So when we talk about risk, we actually talk about three different things. We talk about Uh, the hazard that you face and and two homes can face the same hazard and have the same sort of baseline number. But then then we talk about exposure, which is, you know, what are the steps that you've taken to either at the community level or at the property level to reduce the risk to that hazard? So, i.e., reduce your exposure. And the score would account for both of those. The third element is vulnerability. That comes to your own personal socioeconomic. How much can you afford to lose if you face an event? That's something else. Don't think the score would affect that. That's something you need to gauge yourself. But, the, but exposure is what, the, uh, is what the score would focus on.
0: We're talking about climate risk scores with Craig Stewart, VP of Climate Change and Federal Issues with the Insurance Bureau of Canada. I know that many, if not all, of our listeners listening right now are thinking, all right, is this going to mean higher rates going forward?
3: Um, conversely, uh, what, this, what a risk score would do is be able to provide a consistent approach for those of us in the financial industry, whether you're a mortgage insurer, a mortgage lender, or a, uh, an insurer, it'd be a tool that we could use to offer premium incentives to actually lower the rates that you pay. Because these risks are escalating, given climate change, uh, we are worried, of course, about uh, you know how this is going to affect uh, consumers in the longer term, and, and so it you know it's in everybody's interest that we put some sort of system in place that helps uh, people understand their risk and helps uh, and, and and that allows us to provide incentives uh, if they improve their risk. Think about you know you get you have uh, when you um, get fire insurance. Uh, you are asked a series of questions by your insurance broker. Do you have, uh, how far are you from a fire station? How, fire, How uh, you know, do you have smoke detectors? Do you have fire extinguishers in your house? And you get premium rewards, typically, if you have these things. If you're close to a fire station, thats That's a similar approach that we w- want to get to with flooding and with other climate risks
0: got a couple more minutes with Craig Stewart from the Insurance Bureau of Canada. We're talking about uh, climate risk scores for your home what What is the likelihood this this uh, framework, if you will, is implemented in the next couple of years or is this years' down the road
3: um we uh, We have been Advocating that it needs to be in place by 2025, uh, we are because we are seeing these events escalate so rapidly. There is some urgency to this. This is why we assembled, worked with the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation to assemble uh, this uh, this event uh, uh, early this year, uh, where we convened experts from across Canada to help us uh, design this framework. Um, we know that uh, at the federal level. Minister Blair, who's our Minister for Emergency Preparedness, is mandated to create some sort of online system, a flood portal, if you will, to disclose flood risk to Canadians. And CMHC is actively exploring how to implement uh, this score that we're talking about in the near term. So there's a number of measures afoot uh, to help Canadians understand their risk, uh, and we think this is a key tool that we need. And we need it quickly. Well, it's
0: a very interesting idea, and I think it will do a lot of good, that is for sure. Craig, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us
1: today.
3: Yeah, thank you, Rick.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Later on today, just outside Hamilton City Hall, there's going to be a climate rally being held. Um, we know the climate. We, we just talked about climate change in our previous hour. Climate is a huge, massive issue in this community, in this country, around the world, and rightfully so, because we have to do a better job of protecting our planet. Here to talk about what is happening outside City Hall today, Jordan Boyer, an organizer of this climate rally. Jordan, good morning. How are you today?
4: I'm good. How
0: are you? I'm great. How? uh, Maybe we'll start with the basics. What is happening today? What's the goal?
4: Well, we're meeting at 12 p.m. from 1 p.m. outside Hamilton City Hall. Uh, Our main goal is to demand more action or, like, better leadership out of Andrea Horvath not that she's done anything yet but Fred Eisenberger did not do enough he was supposed to sign the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty in April of last year he didn't do that uh, public transport is still an issue so really we just want better out of Andrea than Eisenberger and this protest is like really centered around that like we're demanding more from her although we do do them every friday of last friday of the month this one has a specific focus on the election
0: so now that we have a new mayor and council this is the time to strike to say hey you know remember we still got to protect our planet here
4: exactly you know now it's like an opportunity for change and we need to show our new leaders what we're expecting from them
0: so what kind of change do you want to see what has to happen
4: well we need complete systemic change because like Everything that has got us up to this point is like the corrupt capitalist systems, you know, like when you look at colonization and capitalism and how it's affecting the global self. Like, then you can see that literally like everything we do is rooted in colonization and just, like all that bad stuff, you know.
0: In terms really, of yeah, in terms of climate action plans, you know Hamilton has a, a goal of net zero by I think it's 2050 uh, and other you know benchmarks to hit along the way. Is that not enough or not quick enough?
4: Well, according to the IPCC, if we reach net zero by 2050, that only gives us a sixty seven percent chance to not set off irreversible like chain reactions. So I don't know. I'm not sure how comfortable I feel giving the next generations a 67 percent chance at a habitable planet. What you know, can, like what,
0: what can residents do to help?,
4: oh, there's a lot they can do, um, like coming with us, protesting with us, showing that people like will not accept inaction and delays. Um, because obviously the people in power are there because we put them there, you know, like we voted them in, and they'll listen to us because without us, are they, you know, just someone with a name attached to it. Now so that we, show... pardon,
0: sorry, Jordan, sorry to interrupt. I think we just have a, a slow connection on on the Zoom. Um, now that oh, a new now that a new council is in place, what's the first thing you would like to see from them, and what kind of reaction or response do you want from today's uh, rally?
4: I want them to sign the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, you know, I feel like that's long overdue. They declared a climate emergency in 2019 and what has come from it, you know, like. So I want to see them follow up on the action that they promised and then just never did.
0: OK, um, Jordan, I,
4: transportation I, like that's a big thing I Want I to see that go electric, maybe even free then more people can use it. it, can come from taxes, and that would be an incentive to use it instead of just using cars all the time, which aren't good.
0: Jordan, appreciate the time. Good luck with the rally outside City Hall this afternoon. Uh, thank you. That is Jordan Boyer, organizer of the Climate Rally outside Hamilton City Hall. It begins at noon, and uh, I'm sure a few people will come out to support the cause. And uh, if you are interested in doing so, obviously you can join Jordan and uh, others who are tackling a big problem in this well around the world this is a global issue
1: you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml
0: it is the final installment in our five-part series showcasing JFE Soji Power Canada. Today, where does Canada rank when it comes to sustainable energy transformation, where are we headed? We take a glimpse into the future of JFE and where they will focus their efforts. Ron Harper is the president and CEO of JFE Soji Power Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Ron, good morning. How are you?
6: Good morning, thank you. I'm doing well. I hope you all are as well.
0: Uh, fantastic. Yes, sustainable energy transformation. How is it proceeding in this country? Are we in a good place?
6: Well, I think there's a it, there's two separate stories to that. Uh, when it comes to electrical energy. Uh, Canada is actually quite clean. It's one of the cleanest, uh, if not the cleanest, in the con- in the world in terms of generation. Almost eighty percent of our electricity comes from uh, environmentally friendly, non-greenhouse gas-emitting sources. Uh, However, if you look at the transportation and and some of the other sectors, it's not quite so good. Transportation and emissions from the production of oil and gas are two really large uh, sources of greenhouse gases in Canada. And uh, those two alone account for about half of our country's emissions. So we have a lot of work to do on that. Uh, And uh, that's a big part of the country's challenge over the next 30 years.
0: So what improvements in that regard should we expect in the future?
6: I think one of the biggest things that you'll see, and you're seeing more and more press on this, is the conversion of our transportation sector, particularly passenger vehicles, as well as uh, 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 trucks, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. uh, to more electric and hybrid uh, uh, vehicles. Uh, Right now, uh, only roughly 3% of sales of Canadian cars are electric. A little bit more than that for hybrid. And uh, the goals for uh, that the, the government of Canada set is that uh, to be at 40% by 2030 and 100% conversion to electric by 2040. Uh, and uh, so that's a big challenge for the auto industry and the supply chain supporting that. To, uh, so that's probably one of the biggest uh, uh, single uh, efforts that the country's uh, going to be facing.
0: What role will JFE Soji Power Canada play in this aspect of, of this sector?
6: Uh, there's uh, several things that we're focusing on today. Uh, we supply... Uh, most of our product goes into the uh, transmission and distribution sector of the electrical uh, uh, electrical energy supply in Canada. Uh, the big growth areas for us are renewable energy generation. We supply products that go into to that part of the, the business. Uh, and really, because of the growth in the electrical infrastructure and the demand, uh, there's going to need to be a lot of uh, uh, growth and, uh, uh, and and addition to the electrical uh, grid alone. So those two things alone are going to uh, drive uh, some of our businesses' historical products and, and market areas. But the other area that's going to uh, be a big part of our business going forward is the powertrain uh, motor materials for hybrid and electric vehicles. Uh, That part of the transformation is just starting. Uh, Most of the motor cores and powertrains for electric and hybrid vehicles now are made outside of North America. Uh, And that's going to change a lot in the in the upcoming years as auto companies are shifting to more electric and hybrid vehicles. And uh, one of our goals is to be a big part of the supply chain for that.
0: It is the final installment in our five-part series showcasing JFE Soji Power Canada. We're in discussion here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML with Ron Harper, the president and CEO of JFE Soji Power Canada. We know that Canada is aiming to be net zero by 2050. Is that, in your mind, daunting or exciting, or a bit of both?
6: (laughs) <laughs> I think the right answer is a bit of both and uh it's it's a pretty challenging goal there's no doubt about it uh because there's so many things that need to change you know for the last uh, century our society's been built on Uh, energy sources from uh, oil and gas type products and uh, changing that 100% over or largely over to an electrified society is is a big challenge in a short period of time, uh, which is really going to be necessary for us to meet the net zero 2050 goals. Uh, It does create for our business a lot of challenges and opportunities. uh, And I think for our society and our communities a lot. Uh, It is, uh, it is a a big challenge. And as you said, daunting, and it's something, you know, 30 years sounds like a long time, but unless we really put a heavy emphasis on uh, what we need to do today, it's, it's, it's quickly going to become impossible unless we, uh, unless we have a sense of urgency now.
0: Well, the future is certainly exciting. Yes, there are challenges ahead, but with companies like JFE, Soji, Power Canada at the front line and making a huge difference in our community and our country, uh, we are in uh, some good stead, that is for sure. Ron, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us.
6: Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: It's a huge weekend for Halloween parties. This is the weekend and many people will go to a party at a, a restaurant or someone's home to celebrate the spooky season. And for many, you know, this is really the only time of the year where we get dressed up in costume, pretend we're someone or something else. For cosplayers, though... This is a year-round hobby, cosplay, and dressing up as a superhero or a horror film star, whatever the case is, is, is really cool. And a lot of these people really get into it, and a lot of them make their own costumes, including our next guest. Emma Teresa is a content creator and a cosplayer and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Emma, good morning. How are you?
7: Good morning. I'm great. Thanks for having me today.
0: This is going to be a silly question off the start, but are you set to rock and roll this Halloween?
7: I am set. I've got two costumes ready, actually. Three, if you count my work ones. <laughs> so,
0: hold on a minute. How Are you going to wear all these costumes?
7: Oh, yeah. Of course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what kind of costumes are you sporting this Halloween?
7: Well, for work, obviously, we have to be you know a little bit more appropriate. I work uh, in a hair salon in Burlington, and I help manage one. Uh, so, I'll be Wednesday, Adams, tomorrow uh, in Burlington Network. And Sunday, I'm going to a party at Storm Crow Manor in Toronto, Ontario, and I'll be Raven from Teen Titans. And hopefully Monday, I'll be venturing off to Vaughn's to my girlfriend's place, and she has uh, a nice haunted house that she does for the trick or treaters. So I'll be a, a Silent Hill nurse, it's wow. a horror movie and video game. So gotta spook the kids a little bit, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> now the question is: Did you make all these costumes?
7: I did make my Silent Hill nurse one. Uh, My dad helped me make that one. It was a lot of fun. It was a passion project for the two of us.
0: Wow, this is a family affair.
7: Yes.
0: (laughs) How long does it take to make a costume like that?
7: Uh, My Silent Hill one took about two weeks. Uh, Mask took one week. Dress took a second one. And after all the painting and extra effects you have to do on it, about two weeks. But I'm not working all day on each costume. Um, Right. My cosplay is a second job, essentially, so I have a full-time job, and then I do this on the side when I have the time. <laughs> now, are you,
0: are you, like, stitching pants and, and, and shirts and all that kind of stuff as well?
7: With a sewing machine, yeah. <laughs> wow,
0: that is tremendous. Thank you. Is this a cheaper option?
7: It can be. Um, it depends on what you can find. Uh, thankfully, now, we have the internet, and it's so there's so many stores online that you can buy a costume perfectly made. For your size, and it's very inclusive to any size, be petite, regular, or plus size. There's so many options online. Um, I made this one specific because I didn't like what I saw online. So I wanted to make it better than what I would see online.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there's there's got to be also you know, a pride factor. You're pouring your blood, sweat, and tears, so to speak, into what you're creating
7: hmm 100%. Um, I would say my Silent Hill nurse is one that I never will resell to another cosplayer. Um, it's something that I made dear to my heart. And I actually display my mask year-round on my shelves because it's just such a beautiful piece that I made.
0: <laughs> Emma Teresa is a content creator, cosplayer, uh, wearing three uh, costumes this Halloween weekend. We're talking about Halloween and uh, how people get dressed up and what they can wear. Is there a, a hot, a popular Halloween costume this year?
7: Oh, yeah. Stranger Things 4. Any any character from Stranger Things will be big this year. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, um, but it's uh, it's a big one for me. And I know Eddie will be a big one. And Chrissy will be big from Stranger Things this year, I think.
0: And those sound like, and, you know, from watching the show, they sound like they would be easy costumes to put together.
7: Yeah, they're pretty easy. Just for Eddie, you just need a jean jacket, some nice skinny jeans, or even just, like, some ripped jeans. And um, any sort of, like, baseball tee that, like a... And, he, you know, those baseball teeth are like white on the, on the mm-hmm. front and kind of like any sort of colors on the sleeves. You can even just draw on the, the club that he's a part of right onto the shirt if it's a white shirt. And Chrissy's just a basic cheerleader uniform, which you can find pretty much anywhere. Skirt and a tube top.
0: <laughs> can Yeah, those sound like easy costumes to do. Can, if someone is making a costume like you do, uh, can they do it last minute or is it going to take them a while? You mentioned yours took about two weeks, even though you're not doing uh, you know, all of it in one day or, or in a series of days.
7: So, this is a little secret that I'm going to say. Okay. Cosplayers are known, known for making their costumes two days before a convention. <laughs> <laughs> but so, it's, it's, it's kind of a thing we do. <laughs>
0: in saying that, though, I mean, they're, they're fantastic.
7: Yes. it's uh, Some of the pieces that you will see, some of them have been working on it for six months. Some of them might have just finished it the night before. Wow. And you would have no idea. And how did you get
0: started in all this?
7: One of my best friends in high school was a cosplayer, and she doesn't do it anymore, but I, I joined it after I graduated from high school. Um, and it, just, it was just so much fun, the environment that you go into when you're attending these conventions. It's, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it.
0: If someone wants to check out your uh, costumes, give us your uh, Twitter or your Instagram feeds. Where can they see some, um, some stuff?
7: You can find me at uh, Emma Teresa May, so E-M-M-A-T-E-R-E-S-A May, M-A-E, uh, on Instagram. Um, and right now I'm rebranding the rest of my uh, my social media, so they're not active at the moment. But that is the one that I am still posting on right now. All
0: right. Now. We will check it out. Emma, really appreciate the time today and have fun this weekend.
7: Thank you so much. I hope you do too.
0: Thanks. That's Emma Teresa, content creator, cosplayer, and, wow, well, not one, not two, but three. Halloween costumes this weekend. She is going to have a blast.
1: Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5 30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900chml.com.
0: The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review